Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Titanic by writer-director James Cameron, one of the biggest films of the 90s. Inspired by true events, this blockbuster hit combined historical romance with an epic tragedy, starring Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio as a pair of star-crossed lovers on board the Titanic a luxury cruise liner doomed to sink after just five days at sea. So this was a Patreon-sponsored request by our listener, Kat. Thank you very much for paying for this episode. We also did an audio commentary track, which we've put on Patreon, um, so people can watch the movie along with us uh, having a wee discussion. Uh, There's so much to talk about with this movie that we solidly did have enough to say for three and a quarter hours, which is impressive. And this was actually Morgan's first time watching the movie, which was a thrilling experience. (laughs) It was indeed. I must also say my thanks to Kat for sponsoring this, our 200th episode, we should also say. (laughs) I really wanted to do something that was memorable for number 200. And I would say that Titanic. A true epic. That bill. Worthwhile. And it was it was great. We had great fun watching this movie. <laughs> we did. I mean, you described it as one of the biggest movies of the 90s, and that is selling it short. It is one of the biggest movies Ever. of all time, yes. period. Financially, yes. culturally, physically. <laughs> By every metric you can come up with, it is one of the biggest movies of all time. I think we have to start by traveling back in time and discussing our experiences or lack thereof with Titanic when it came out. Because even though I didn't see it, you you did. We talked a little bit about this in the commentary, but I think we should rehash a bit because it was just such an enormous cultural phenomenon um, that that inevitably sort of seeps in to how we will be sort of processing yeah. and discussing this. And I'm we're both kind of interesting examples of people who were children at this rate at this time as well because like I didn't have a television and my parents didn't really watch movies so the only films that I was exposed to were like children's movies or films that were so ubiquitous that they were being discussed by everyone so we were both seven years old when this movie came out um, and the only movies I recall anyone talking about aside from like the little children's movies that seven year olds watch were. Braveheart, Robocop, and Titanic. Braveheart because we were Scottish. (laughs) Robocop for reasons I cannot fathom because having watched Robocop as an adult, that film is not suitable for children, but I assume there was like merchandise that was suitable for children. I don't know. Um, But Titanic was like obviously the movie of 1997 and I saw this on video at my friend's presumably eighth birthday party, possibly seventh birthday party, as my first ever sleepover. And I remember this vividly because it was very exciting to be allowed to stay up until four in the morning. I remember being very proud that I stayed up until four in the morning, telling my friend's mother this and her being like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Having to be in the house with several excitable eight-year-olds. But crucially, we did all watch Titanic, which was very exciting for everyone because no one had seen a sex scene before. We definitely didn't know what sex was. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And we watched this film. Um, And as far as I recall, I I liked the film. I find it mind-blowing that we had the attention spans to watch a three-hour-long film. But um, I then, you know, re-watched it again as a young adult and was like, this is claptrap, complete schmaltz. And then re-watching it now as like a full adult who is a film critic who knows about James Cameron, knows about these actors and loves romance novels. I was like, this film is baller as hell. (laughs) It's a great movie. But I think just before we hand over to Morgan... Also, the other element of this that was completely ubiquitous for us specifically was Leonardo DiCaprio, um, who we will be discussing. We're going to, we have a lot to talk about with this episode, but part of the discussion of Titanic has to be like the cultural impact. And the main thing of that was just like girls being fucking obsessed with Leo. And I was just like completely baffled, but also, you know, disparaging and snobbish about this to my peers. I was just like, I don't understand why everyone's obsessed with Leo. (laughs) And I mean, now I understand, even if I don't like, I mean, I'm not like crushing on Leo, but like, I get it. (laughs) So I don't remember, there must have been girls in my, what, second grade I mean, we were too young at that point, but like with, he was still like at his peak, like when we were just in like the age range where some girls start having like recreational crushes, which is like nine or 10. And he was still like the boy du jour. 
I remember him as a phenomenon for sure. Like we, as you say, we were too young at this point for like our peers for the most part to be into him. But like, I remember the man in the iron mask coming out, which is a sign like who cares about that movie? It was just that he was such a huge thing. And that was his follow up to this movie a couple years later. But my parents, as I have said on this podcast before, were pretty strict about what we were allowed to watch, which is kind of funny in retrospect, because they really were not like huge moralists in general. But for the the movies, just we were allowed to watch Disney movies. and That was basically it. So I needless to say, did not see this at the age of seven. But I remember everyone in school talking about it. And it was like this big deal that everyone wanted to see this movie. And specifically the scene where Kate Winslet was naked, which was, you know, that was the big thing everyone was talking about. Uh, as well as the fact that it was on two VHS tapes. And I think the attention span thing that you mentioned is interesting. I feel like the fact that it was so long was in some way, even to children of the age of seven or eight, there there was some appeal about it being so long that nothing else was that long. And so it was just like, oh, you get to watch this like special huge thing. And then it's like an accomplishment having seen it. And then some people the would just go back and watch it 15 times in theaters, yes. which is why it made so much fucking money. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll, we'll discuss we all will. that. <laughs> but, um, I then never saw it, I think, because when I was a teenager, I was definitely like, ugh, Titanic, because it was, you know, a schmaltzy romance. And I was thinking today, you know, before we started recording, have I ever told you the story about the student film I made in high school? Mm, I'm not sure. Tell me. Tell me. This would have been in like 2006, and it was like a parody film about a bunch of teenage girls reacting to Live Journal going down in 2004. I, yes, 2005. you have. I love this. I love the concept. Uh-huh. It was it was truly my masterpiece. Shout out to my high school friend Mara who did this with me. But um, I mean, really, like my character tried to overdose on multivitamins. <laughs> like this was the level of stuff we were doing. But we had one section that was in some way like parodying Titanic, and we definitely use My Heart Will Go On. But I had never seen Titanic, but it was so culturally ubiquitous that we could make jokes about it. And everyone got it and laughed. And it was just everywhere. And I remember my friend Nicole, who was the star of the Titanic part, being like, Morgan, you would hate Titanic. Like, do not watch. (laughs) Like, you should not watch this movie. And she, she's still one of my best friends, and she was totally right that if I had watched it at the age of 15 or 16, I would not have liked this movie at all. So I think it was probably sensible to wait, you know, 15 years. But part of what was kind of surreal about finally watching it is that anytime you do that with something that's such an ubiquitous cultural product, it's like you've already consumed it. And then there are certain images that are so familiar. But then when you actually watch the movie, it's kind of not the thing you've had in your head the whole time. And the thing specifically about Titanic that I had in my brain until a couple years ago when I read something about it was that I believed that Rose was blind and that that was a big (laughs) part of the story, which I think must have been that like someone in my first grade class who had not seen the movie like concocted that and said something about it because I have no idea why I would have thought that otherwise. But that just was in my head is that like, that's the plot of Titanic is that the blind girl falls in love with Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> which isn't the plot of this movie at all. I mean, it's definitely like, a plausible plot for a 90s romance film, but... <laughs> oh, for sure. But again, these things just like get into your brain. And then I was like, I don't know where that came from. Well, when we watched it, I was surprised to discover that Leo's character, Jack, wasn't Irish. Because the film is so fucking Irish, which is one of the really funny, like elements of this movie there's loads of irish music on the soundtrack and obviously the ship was built in ireland but it's just got this like weird sort of when some americans are just like really into irish stuff it's just such a strange vibe because it's like it it doesn't like fully count as cultural appropriation necessarily but it's like why is it here and i kind of was googling like being like is james cameron like fourth generation irish it's like no he just decided to have some like irish themes in there but yeah, I think this is as, as good a time as any to start talking about the actual film to avoid this podcast also being three hours long. We are going to definitely talk about like the making of the film in general. But first, I think we should talk about the story. And that means we need to begin with the, the submarines. 
Because the genesis of this movie is that James Cameron is just obsessed with submarines. He saw a TV documentary about the Titanic in like literally like the 1980s, like 10 years before this film, made some notes being like, oh, I should do a Titanic movie where the framing device is finding the ship and then you do a story in the middle that's on the Titanic, which is obviously a great conceit. And then later on, he saw an IMAX documentary about some professional submarine divers who like dove down to the actual Titanic wreck and got footage. And he was just consumed with a passionate desire to do this himself because he has, you know, the money and also the filmmaking abilities, which on the whole, professional submariners do not have either of those things. So he like browbeat a film studio into agreeing to this film pitch, which at this point was like a very expensive blockbuster, but not as unbelievably expensive as it would be later on. And he was like, we are going to pay for this submarine to go down and film the real Titanic. So we have footage of the actual Titanic in this film. And then the rest of it would be a romantic epic. And it's like, I mean, in some ways, this is like the absolute archetypal blockbuster because it's like a PG-13 four-quadrant movie, multiple genres, you know, you've got stuff for the stereotypical masculine and feminine storytelling, um, which is not really the way that James Cameron's other movies are perceived because he does a lot of action movies. But like, crucially, the reason why films like Aliens and Terminator and stuff are so successful is because they have like really strong emotional storytelling as well. But even so, like, it was fascinating to watch this film and see how good he is at writing, like, a classic romance. Um, But you don't get to the romance until you've watched 15 to 20 minutes of submarine. And Morgan and I were sitting there, like, how long is this submarine sequence? Because let me tell you, it's not interesting. (laughs) It is fascinatingly bad. I mean, it's hard to argue that much because people watched this three plus hour movie like 10 times in the cinema. If you quizzed people who were like professional Titanic viewers and were like, how did you do it when you saw it 15 times? I bet a lot of them were like, oh, I sneak in 15 minutes late. (laughs) Well, I listened to the blank check episodes of Titanic. They had uh, Emily Yoshida and Katie Rich on and Katie Rich in particular, who's an editor at Vanity Fair, was one of the like you know, middle schoolers who saw Titanic a zillion times. And all four of them were like, the prologue is so great. We love it so much. And I was like, oh, this is what it was like if you like were in it at the time. It's just like full nostalgia has like taken over your brain. (laughs) Yeah. And they had other critiques of the movie. It wasn't like they were sort of just like blindly saying it was perfect, but they all were really into the prologue, which was fascinating to me because I did not care for it at all. and It's also not narratively necessary. No. And I mean, there is a certain sort of eerie appeal to seeing the actual footage of the wreck, which I'm certain at the time was part of what was going on. I mean, right? I, it's very compelling, but like it would be compelling if it was sort of three to five minutes, you know? Yes. And it extends into this whole thing with Bill Paxton, who's like searching for this necklace that is a plot point sort of MacGuffin in the movie in the plot with Kate Winslet and she as an old woman goes there with her granddaughter who is played by James Cameron's wife and there's this like frisson of sexual tension between that woman and the Bill Paxton character who is clearly a stand-in for James Cameron and I was just like this is too much like (laughs) if you're analyzing James Cameron's like psychology which we will be. The beginning and end of this movie are fascinating because it's so much about his own brain. But from an actual artistic perspective, you do not need it at all. And it goes on and on. And it leads into a voiceover. And as regular listeners will know, we're not fans of the humble voiceover. (laughs) Something which on the whole is not necessary. And in this case, it's like you literally have kind of old rose narrating stuff which is very clear from this what you're watching on screen because like titanic is not a confusing film they introduce everything very gracefully and very obviously (laughs) and they're like here are the two protagonists we have the beautiful wealthy rose who is being forced into a loveless marriage for monetary reasons and this scrappy charismatic young jack who's you know gambling his way onto the ship to find a new life and it's like they both have absolutely fantastic introductions and um to my memory that's when the film begins (laughs) 15 to 20 minutes in after we've apparently had to watch lots of submarines. 
Well, and he cuts back yeah. to them a couple times. At one point, and it's... a point where it was like interrupting like a really emotionally intense sequence. And they're like, okay, back to old Rose in like 1995. <laughs> it's such a momentum killer. We were both just like, no, <laughs> like, why is he doing this? So it starts off sort of slow, I would say. But once he transports us back to 19... 19- 12 or whatever the year yeah. the Titanic was. He he just throws you into this very tropey, satisfying romance novel, as you say, plot. The romance stuff is interesting because when we were doing the commentary, you were making references to romance novels because that is a genre you are very familiar with. And I was thinking more about films because I don't read romance novels. But I am familiar with like tropes of romance novels and I've obviously read a lot of fan fiction which is very you know they, they borrow from each other and I feel like a lot of the tropes in this feel more romance novelty to me than filmic traditionally which is interesting because I cannot imagine that James Cameron was like well versed in romance well, novels. this is tropes, what fascinated right? me right because he has like he he definitely wrote it like this, this is the movie that yes. he wrote oh yes even though he is in a lot of ways, kind of the archetypal, sort of very aggressive, macho, like auteur stereotype. That isn't something that translates to his work. The introduction of these characters, you have this clean cut duo of characters who are clearly perfect for each other in like a narrative way. Like they fit together in ways that like they solve problems that exist in each other's personal and emotional lives. And also it's very kind of hinged on Rose's desire for freedom and independence which is really crucial to a lot of historical romances because obviously it's like it's taking place in an era when women had very little independence and she finds her independence by fleeing this loveless betrothal and hooking up with this guy who actually appreciates her and every single scene that Jack's in is just like wonderfully conceived to make him this incredibly appealing and also appropriate love interest for her, which is extraordinarily rare, especially in like more recent mainstream romance movies in Hollywood, where it's just like, there's no understanding of like, what makes a male lead appealing, partly because like most of the people who are making these films are straight men. And I was kind of reading a profile, which we're going to reference a few times in this, in BuzzFeed, uh, written by a journalist called Sarah Marshall, who kind of did like a big deep dive into the whole production of, of of Titanic. And she's kind of talking about how Jack is not a self-insert character because he behaves nothing like James Cameron, but he's kind of like James Cameron's wish fulfillment character in that he's this really like emotionally open, charismatic, creative person. And I just find that really interesting to see that kind of narrative play out with an idealized man who isn't kind of idealized in the way that male protagonists usually are for films made by men. Well, the way I have seen and heard him described in sort of more recent talk about this movie, this term would not have been in use in 1997, but it's clearly applicable in retrospect is he's, he's a manic pixie dream boy, right? Like, that is the character he, type. He comes and introduces here. her to a new world, but like not in like an overly quirky way. You watch it and you're like, this is plausible, but he is also like perfect. Yes. I mean, it works. I'm not saying it's bad, but like that is absolutely what's happening. Like, and normally in movies where the genders are reversed, which you see way more and is way more annoying, the women just exist as an emotional function of these male characters, right? And that's obviously sexist and irritating and et cetera, et cetera. But in this, he basically shows up and his entire plot function is to liberate her from this unfortunate situation that she's in and to give her this sense of just like joy in her life. And he dies at the end, you know, needless to say. And he winds up on the ship kind of by accident because there's been he's been gambling for the tickets at the beginning and has spent like 24 hours with her basically and at the end when they're 
you know, when he's like dying in the freezing water, he's just like, I'm so glad that this happened. And I was like, I feel like maybe that's not how this conversation went. <laughs> like, he probably wishes he had not got on the fucking boat, but that's the whole But it completely sweeps you this, away. Right? It was like shocking to me to rewatch this and remember that the ship was only afloat for like five days, which I feel like also like, a lot of people probably just don't pick up on like it doesn't really matter because it's a whirlwind romance and like it works partly because like they're young rose is 17 jack's 20 it is very much it's so passionate and whirlwind that it works in context but also the film is like not really emphasizing the fact that it's only five days (laughs) yes i mean movie time doesn't yeah function my normal time when it comes to romances like if you watch any of the old screwballs they all take place over around like three days hours yeah yeah (laughs) and then they're married at the end which is great surely all those relationships will work out fine but uh yeah i mean i think that the lead characters are an interesting case study in you know they're definitely types but they feel sort of specific enough and the performances are good enough, Kate Winslet in particular, that you believe them. And he just deploys the romance tropes so effectively that you're swept up in it. Something that I really love about Jack is effectively, like the structure of this film is like 15 minutes of submarine, an hour and a half of romance, and then like an hour and a half of ship sinking. (laughs) And within like the first third of Jack having been introduced, they make it very clear that he's just full of life in this wonderfully compelling way, which is all Leo's performance. And as we all discuss later, he was not happy with that because he wanted to play an edgier, darker character. But he's just like so unbelievably charming and energetic and delightful. And as soon as he meets Rose, you immediately understand that he like really wants her, but in a non-creepy way. And their first two interactions are him saving her life by having amazing social skills because she's suicidal, but he talks her down because she's not really suicidal. She's just looking for a way out of her, her, her marriage. So like we know immediately that he has fantastic social skills. He's attracted to her. He respects boundaries. He's funny. He's sexual, but he's also respects women because like their other scene towards the beginning is when he introduces his like drawings because he's like a wannabe artist who went to Paris, which kind of later on is going to lead into the draw me like one of your French girls. He shows her these like nudes of sex workers he's drawn in Paris. And like they manage to play this scene in a way that is like fun and flirty and innocent and charming. And it kind of shows like, oh, I'm a sexual being. I see you as a sexual being, but I'm not a threat, which is like that is romance novel content because it's like setting the tone correctly in a way that removes any sense of fear from the people in the audience who will be seeing themselves in Rose. Like it removes the sense of threat, which is present in a lot of films unconsciously because the people making the films do understand that that's an issue. Well, and the foil to him is the Billy Zane <laughs> The comical name I cannot Disney, remember. Disney, yeah, I mean, it's Billy, Billy Zane, who is like a yeah. Disney villain. <laughs> who is playing Rose's fiance, who he is, truly wonderful in the movie but he is not playing a fleshed out human being i would say he is just an evil man who keeps trying to get her to sleep with him before like they're not married yet but he keeps trying to get her to sleep with him on the boat which is obviously not good and there's this scene i don't remember what sets him off but he like freaks out and flips over a table and the breakfast stuff goes all over the place and she's clearly really shaken by this and again it's like pg-13 kind of domestic violence stuff right like it's upsetting but it's not graphic but it's kind of like introducing these concepts in a way where if you're young you can like be upset by it but still maybe not completely grasp what's going on if you don't have personal experience of those things but you get that he's really bad whereas you know, Jack is such a nice boy. <laughs> like, like, you you don't need to fully intellectually understand all this stuff as a, you know, tween girl yeah. to emotionally be like, oh, I, I know what's happening. And also, here. like, right. 
Leo always was of a physical type. Like he is, he is the kind of androgynous, non-threatening boy of Lisa Simpson's non-threatening boys magazine, of which there are <laughs> yes. many for every ge- generation. I think probably the tweens have now moved on from Timothy Chalamet to like a new type of Timothy Chalamet. But like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I do a mentorship program with a teenage girl, and Timothy Chalamet is still in with the teenage girls. So I can confirm that he is still popular. When we were around that age, it was Orlando Bloom. I can completely, I get it so much more in retrospect. Oh, absolutely. It's the non-threatening boy. Yes, like, girls who were into boy bands, I was just like, ugh. Of course, as a teenager, I love the Beatles, so I'm not trying to, you know, completely say I was above all this. But like, the Backstreet Boys in sync thing, when we were in elementary school, I was just like, this is absurd. I'm going to listen to the Counting Crows with my parents. Like, this is really, it was bad. But in retrospect, watching this movie, it's so clear and obvious what the appeal of this is. And like, he's very attractive. He's obviously like a baby, but he's very cute. You know? Yeah. What's not to like? He can dance. He's friends with everyone. You know? The thing that really doesn't work about the plot of this movie, which is kind of interesting, is the class stuff it works insofar as like the movie obviously works right but i think it's kind of interesting the way cameron doesn't get it right i mean while we were watching i was like highly amused by the fact that i mean this is just like normal film magic which is like we all excuse it but the fact that like when they go to like the poor area of the ship it's like not overcrowded and disgusting and also everyone is like strolling around on deck i was like only the first class people would even be allowed on deck there are 3,000 right. people in this ship. There is not room for 3,000 people to be above deck. <laughs> Correct. So, you know, back in the day, the structure of these romances was very much that the women married up, right? The Pride and Prejudice model. And part of the appeal and anxiety in that novel is that she's marrying up. And you see that in many ways throughout the 19th century and then in the romantic comedies in the 30s and 40s also of which i have seen many 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 movies virtually always if there's a class disparity between the leads it's the man who has the money the thin man is the one that sticks out to me as an example where the opposite is true and crucially they're already together by the time that series starts so it's not really a romantic comedy it just kind of has that vibe because they're so charming together but like there's a movie called platinum blonde with gene harlow where she's rich and she marries a journalist and like they get they split up by the end because it like it can't work because his masculinity is like too threatened by the fact that she has money right and then as the decades kind of pass you know romance novels and films start to kind of flip the equation a bit because obviously there is an appeal in you know, the female fantasy of, like, the working class man. And I think a really great example of this is Dirty Dancing, which I rewatched recently and was thinking of while watching this movie, because that has a really excellent scene of the richer girl going to see where the counselors have their separate party, right? And, like, they're doing the sexy dancing there. And she's like, ooh, this is so much better. (laughs) Um, And it feels much more convincing than the, you know, let's go see how the steerage people are dancing in this movie, which is completely absurd. But part of the appeal of the romance in this film is so obviously that, like, you get to imagine that you're the rich girl in Kate Winslet, and then also get to kind of fantasize about escaping from... Sexism. Just escaping from gender constrictions. (laughs) Yes. But the way that... James Cameron depicts working class people in this movie is just, I mean, hilarious is the word I would use. Who could have guessed this from the man who gave us Avatar? (laughs) Yes. So obviously Jack is very fleshed out and a very compelling character. Although he does, you know, die at the end in order for the rich girl to go on and have, have her life. But every single other steerage character. I mean, Jack's little pal. Fabrizio, oh, the most Italian man in the world, who is there in the introductory scenes, appears basically as a glorified extra a couple of times in the middle to remind you he exists, and then dies catastrophically towards the end. 
you, I practically was expecting him to be like, mamma mia. I mean, like, that is the <laughs> level at which this guy is operating. So there's him. Then there are all of the Irish people, which I think the Irish stuff in the movie is because the boat was made. Yeah, it's because the ship is Irish. And he's like, we're going to do Irish music. And like the, the live band is actually, they're really fun. I love the folk dancing scene because like it's just really energetic and delightful and I love to see a bit of that in a movie. They're played by a Californian band. Like they're an Irish-Scottish folk band that like kicked off partly because they were in Titanic. They're called Gaelic Storm. And also the soundtrack, like the score composed by James Horner um, is heavy on the Irish themes James Horner was a big sort of blockbuster film composer who did various movies ranging from sort of The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek to Titanic and Braveheart. So he does these really sort of like big romantic old school orchestral scores which are kind of not really done anymore that much. He also has a little bit of a reputation for some like delicate and light notes of plagiarism <laughs> throughout his career. He has a section on his Wikipedia page titled musical borrowing in quotation marks. <laughs> uh, and he also, the I think he did this because he did Braveheart which is like garbage scottish garbage scottish themed adjacent is the only way you can describe braveheart terrible movie but this is kind of the vibe they were going for so he combined this sort of big orchestral score with irish folk music and crucially a synthetic choir (laughs) they have a synth choir like when you're playing a keyboard and you press the voice key and for some reason that was a decision that was made in the mid 90s i mean it feels very nice it's very 90s when you're watching it you're just like oh yeah of course But uh, yeah, the music is pretty egregious. All the bad accents are not great. There's a bit right at the end where a woman, an Irish woman in steerage is like telling her children Irish folk tales before they die, making no effort to get them off the boat, which I was like, interesting. Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah. They're all like, they're all very ginger. They're like, find me the gingerest person in the world. It's like, um, okay. Interesting interpretation of what Ireland's like, but okay. But It's interesting because he's obviously made this big effort to show how monstrous the upper crust people are. And they are monstrous. I mean, it's cartoonish, but like we haven't even gotten to talking about the the part of the movie where the ship sinks yet. But Billy Zane's behavior in that half of the movie is, I mean, so, so just hilariously bad. But it doesn't quite work if you don't balance that out with like the other half of the equation, right? And it's clear that James Cameron is just like, I don't know what those people are like, I guess. Yeah, I mean, because it all hinges so much on Rose's life and Rose's journey rather than Jack's. So it's like, we really have no conception in this film of what it's like to work for a living. Jack, I completely will accept as like a mysterious ragamuffin who gambles his way onto the ship and I, that's fine. Everyone else is just like, what are you doing here? What are your lives? And then they have people who are like shoveling coal into the furnaces to act as a backdrop for when there's got to be like a sexy scene where they run in front of some fire. And it's like, okay, I mean, for me, I think that the most effective scene that I just like loved because I had no recollection of it happening. So basically after Jack has like saved Rose's life, he's invited to go and have dinner with the rich people as like his reward. And it's the scene where famously the nice rich lady teaches uh, Jack how to use the right knife and fork, which is how we all learned how to use the right knife and fork (laughs) if you ever go to a posh dinner. You go from the outside in. But then like the rest of this scene is like basically Jack being quite openly rude but in a very funny and delightful way to all of these rich people who are basically trying to mock him and belittle him but I just felt like it was a really well observed and funny scene because it kind of shows the way in which he's really confident and basically doesn't give a shit about these people while also having a bit of anxiety about him like embarrassing himself potentially which is like the classic trope for this kind of scene but it feels like a subversion of that because we get rid of the embarrassment quite soon because we know that he doesn't really care but also instead of them being like throw him out of the restaurant they all actually are just very charmed and entertained because they're getting this dose of something refreshing in like a safe package at dinner and like their lives are already boring and it's something you see unfold in real life quite a lot and it's also why cruises of this type were like 
dynamite for con artists. I don't recall his name, but there was this absolutely incredible sort of late 19th, early 20th century con artist who had that box that just like prints money. He would go on cruise ships and like sell the box that prints money. And obviously the concept is that you put a banknote into the box and then two banknotes come out, but it takes a day for it to make a banknote. So by the time you're off the ship, it takes a few days before the box breaks. Because obviously he's only put like five banknotes into the box. But by that point, you've paid him like $10,000 for this magical box that does nothing but print banknotes. And he did this several times just on cruise ships because you have loads of captive audience, gullible rich people who are like, oh, I'd love a box that prints money. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I like that scene a lot. Kathy Bates is really fun in this movie. That reminds me that we should mention the makeup and the costumes before we get into the action. (laughs) The makeup is hilarious. The costumes are interesting because they're kind of like a 50-50 split between really like attention to detail, accurate, you know, recreations of, of stuff from the period. And then stuff that was obviously more fashionable in the 90s or like trends from the 90s that they've kind of grafted on. You know, Kate Winslet wears a couple of more ampere waisted dresses throughout the movie that definitely would like she would not have worn in 1912. But that was more in line with what girls would have liked at the time. But I mean, the the costumes are great. It's just a kind the co- of yeah, the costumes combination. are gorgeous. <laughs> the makeup is just outright funny because it's like it's hilarious. They've just made the decision that they are going to just completely abandon all sense of history, which is fine. <laughs> like many elements of this movie are painstakingly accurate because James Cameron had a lot of genuine res- respect for the people who died in the Titanic, and he wanted like a lot of precision. So. So yeah, like once we get into the sinking section, we'll kind of discuss that a bit more. But clearly makeup was not one of his priorities because in 1912, wearing pretty much any visible makeup would have been scandalous. These women would have been, I would imagine, probably a little bit of powder to avoid being shiny. And that's the end of that. But they they have like, you know, the whole, they've got full face on Rose. And particularly, most of the upper class women are wearing bright red lipstick, which would have been completely forbidden. (laughs) Well, it's not even that it's bright red. It's, it's lip like liner. dark. Dark red, but it's, it's like dark. 90s. They look like characters in Buffy. They've got Buffy makeup. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, particularly because the sets are so unbelievably fetishistically accurate, which we can move into now. <laughs> the fact that he was just like, I don't know, makeup, I guess? Do whatever you want, clearly, to the makeup artist is quite funny to me because it reveals, you know, the priorities going on here. Because, I mean, basically, we've already alluded to this now. They basically just built the fucking Titanic again. They kind of ex- expanded certain things, like the um, the grand staircase is wider. The actual staircase was for filming purposes. But the degree of historical accuracy of those sets was... I mean, this is part of why the movie cost so much, is that he was like, I must have actual wallpaper. It must not be painted on. And they were like, it doesn't matter. And he was like, I will know that it wasn't real wallpaper. And like all the plates had to be exactly the right, you know, kind of plate. And of course, they then all get smashed up when the, you know, thing sinks. I mean, this is, I think this is a good time to talk about James Cameron's personality Yes. Uh, which is like basically kind of <laughs> tying into just the whole second half of the film, which is where it becomes a disaster movie. Because James Cameron, obviously, like one of the biggest filmmakers in terms of scale that Hollywood has ever seen, like he makes these colossal, colossal blockbusters, very expensive, also very physically dangerous in this case, and in the case of The Abyss, and in the case of the upcoming Avatar movies, which have a lot of underwater material. And it's kind of interesting to contrast the themes that he intentionally puts into his work and the, the, the results of his work, like, you know, the massive environmental damages he causes with his movies versus the fact that Avatar is meant to be like an environmental epic and the fact that he repeatedly makes movies where like toxic masculinity is the villain while also being one of these infamous figures who churns through wives like no tomorrow, but also is like a complete nightmare on set because he's constantly screaming at people. And like every story from like working on a James Cameron movie is 
this guy knows everything that's going on. He's an expert who has a very precise idea of what he wants. And if he doesn't get it, he will scream at you until you have a nervous breakdown. And in the case of Titanic, they dynamited like a massive hole in the middle of like somewhere in Mexico so they could build this gigantic water tank so they could film all of the underwater sequences. And then they just filled it with like cold seawater. So all of the actors and cast and like people working in the crew were just like fucking freezing for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. A bunch of people got kidney infections. People were like constantly getting sick. Kate Winslet had a horrible time because she was like freezing cold and miserable and like chipped her elbow at one point and like James Cameron was calling her fat. So it was just like all, (laughs) all a nightmare and all in the name of like the vision, his artistic vision. Well, and he had told Fox, like he'd negotiated a budget, like $110 million with Fox. I suspect knowing there was no fucking way yeah. that he was going to make this The, the budget was like ballooning within the first five minutes because he was like, we definitely need to go down and film the Titanic immediately using this Russian submarine. Yes. And as we mentioned on the commentary track, like the all of the huge engines, etc. that are like in the, in the ship, in the movie, they like built. I mean, they really did essentially built the ship and then break it in half and sink it. And that cost a lot of money and it took forever to film. I think it was like nine months of shooting, which is a very long time. And they wound up having to like bring in like funding from Universal because it was getting too expensive. And you know, executives were going down to Mexico trying to reason with him and he was basically like, if you if you try to fire me, like you'll fire me over my dead body or something and then like drove off in a huff and they were just like, we don't know what to do. And like, you can't <laughs> replace him because like there's no one else who can no. make that film and also like it's his project so it's like once you've sunk all this money into it you just have to power through and they were like we are going to lose lose so much fucking money on this because in terms of trying to break even no film in history had ever made that much money so it was like this gamble on this becoming this colossal box office phenomenon which they did not think was going to happen and it did more or less by surprise which is also kind of what happened with avatar but yeah, like, should we talk a bit about, a bit more about the kind of disaster half before we move into yes. the post the post release? I mean, this is obviously the romance is what gets people coming back over and over and over again. But the disaster half is what makes it like such a huge four quadrant hit, right? Because boys can excuse the fact that they like the romance by being like, "I like the action," <laughs> and it's it's really impressive. And gives it this huge sense of scope that's essentially basically unique in movies. But uh, I think I think I found it really interesting because I, I was simultaneously really impressed and gripped by it. And I think he does a really good job of really conveying the sense of first people not getting it, and then people getting it and panicking, and then showing all these horrific deaths. But also, it's too long. Yeah. In my opinion. I think it's like the, the, the part that's too long is the, the horrific deaths part, right? Because like rewatching yeah. it as an adult, I was like, I actually really love the way that he's portrayed. I mean, love's the wrong word. I'm really impressed by the way he kind of portrays that slow burn of people basically being in denial and not understanding what's happening. And as we know, that is precisely what happens with disasters in real life because people don't want to believe that bad things are happening. And that's, I think, because... James Cameron was such an obsessive researcher. He was basically just doing all of that beat for beat. Like the film is full of real historical figures who aren't really even named on screen, like people who were like employees on the ship. And because there were all these first-hand accounts, like it was there there was like forensic recreations of what happened on the Titanic in the newspapers over the coming weeks after the ship sank because it became this colossal news story. People were completely obsessed. So it's incredibly well documented. He had loads of material to work with. And then he kind of has Jack and Rose existing within these events that really happened. But as Morgan said, you get to this point where it's just like loads of deaths. And at that point, it's like this film has been going on for too long because it's three and a quarter hours long and kind of could be probably slightly under three hours with no damages to like the emotional and like plot arc. But it gets to the point where it's like, I just kept thinking like, wow, James Cameron spends a lot of time thinking about how people can drown. (laughs) He has found... Every possible way you can have a character be horribly killed off in the water happens in this film (laughs) for like a good 20 solid minutes. Well, I think the part that you could cut 
Which is probably to people who are, you know, fanatics about Titanic, blasphemous. But we said this on the commentary. It's the part where Jack and Rose go back down into the ship. Again. Once it's already significantly sunk. Yeah. There's this whole thing with Jack having this conflict with the, like, bodyguard or something of the Billy Zane character. Um, The actor's name, I do not know, unfortunately. But it's, like, a middle-aged guy who's very comically, literally just, like, hunting him down throughout the movie. And he handcuffs him to, like, a pipe or something. And this ship is sinking. And she has to go down and free him and, like, cuts through the um, handcuffs with an axe in a very humorous scene. Because it's it's both humorous and very stressful. Because he's like, okay, why don't you test that on, like, the cabinet and tries to get her to chop at the same place twice. And she does not succeed in doing this. She's, like, all over the place. And he's like, all right, let's just go for it. And miraculously on the first try, she cleanly gets him off of this pipe. But like them getting out of there is so riveting. And, you know, like they finally are back up on deck. But of course, that's not a great solution either, because like all all these people are screwed. But then they wind up going back down again, for some reason, I can't even remember. I mean, she gets onto a lifeboat at some point and then jumps back on the ship because she doesn't want to leave him, blah, blah, blah. But it was the second time going back down. And I think it's just that he wants to show them almost drowning within the ship. Like it's a very kind of horror movie type thing, like the waters, their, you know, noses and whatever. But it just doesn't do anything that we have not already Yeah, it's like you don't need to bring them back into the ship. Yeah. And there's so much of this stuff you're so stressed already that it's just like continuing your stress at like the same high level that I felt like it was sort of egregious. Whereas after that point is when the ship really starts to go like vertical. And then you get all kinds of creative new ways for people to die. So, so it just feels a bit stretched out, but the way he depicts all of those people dying, like it's so morbid, but you really do feel it. I mean, specifically the people who are like falling when the ship gets really vertical and like falling either into the water and are like dead immediately or like hit the you know propeller or something and are you like you hear it in a way that is just like oh this is really bad and obviously you know the whole time that these most of these people are going to die and i think the one thing in that extended prologue which I, in general, do not like, as I said, that is really effective is that they do this sort of, like, visual model for Old Rose of how exactly the ship sunk, which I do not believe is really known because there are so many conflicting accounts, but they pick one for the movie, obviously. And so you see, like, okay, so the water comes in like this, and then the ship splits in half and the first half goes down and then the second half eventually goes down too. So you know exactly what's coming the whole time. And the first half of the movie allows you to sort of like be in this fantasy with these attractive young people and not think about it so much. And then in the second half, you're just like, oh no, right. Yeah. Everyone's well, going this to is kind of This is crucial like because James Cameron is like one of the great action filmmakers, right? And there's so many kind of disaster movies right and the reason why a lot of them just aren't particularly interesting or memorable is because they don't have that setup right so it's like it's the same for horror as well but like particularly when you've got like a really massive action sequence it's not really the scale that's the important thing it's making sure like the whole concept even just like the physical shape of like the set that the characters are in needs to be like solidified in the audience's mind before the really important stuff happens. And a really small scale kind of version of that is like in Die Hard, in the first act of Die Hard, the protagonist, Bruce Willis, takes his shoes off and like you have this really memorable fun scene where it's like, oh, you know, when you could just get off the airplane, you want to take your shoes off and put your feet in the carpet. So you have this like sensory experience. So like the film has introduced you to the idea that like the main character has feet, which is not something that we ever think about in any film. Like no one thinks about the characters having feet. But that sets us up for like in the final third of the film, there's an action sequence where he's like, 
on broken glass with bare feet. So it immediately becomes like so much more compelling. And with Titanic, it's like you have that on multiple levels because it's like you have the scene Morgan just mentioned, which literally is just like, here's how the the ship's going to fall apart. And then you have a full hour and a half where you become intimately familiar with the ship and a bunch of people on the ship. And then once you get to the final disaster sequence, it's not just a combination of like wide shots and little close-ups of people dying horribly. It's giving us like a really solid idea of the logistics of everything that's happening in a really drawn out way. So even if you don't have good like spatial imagination skills, you know precisely what's happening. It makes it really scary and you can imagine that you yourself are in this ship that's like tipping upside down. And that's the thing that's missing from like the vast majority of disaster movies. Well, and he's not particularly subtle about it in many cases. God knows. Uh, no not subtle not the word i would associate with this movie but like there's a scene where rose mentions to victor garber who plays the guy who designed the ship that there aren't enough like i don't know does she figure out yeah she's she's like oh i've been counting the lifeboats and there's three thousand people in this ship and we don't have enough lifeboats and he's like oh don't worry your silly little head over it No, he doesn't. No, no, no. Oh, the other he guy. does not like that. It's that like the money people have oh, yeah. forced yeah, him to the, do that. He's the because... serious, responsible Irishman. Victor Garber's yeah. Irish accent, by the way. Let, let better just let's just not. <laughs> no. I mean, God love him, yeah. but mm, perhaps, perhaps no. But it's an absurd scene because why would she have calculated this? How would she possibly have the information to do? I mean, ugh. but it is completely effective to have that in the movie because it puts in your head that the lifeboats are going to be a problem, right? If you didn't already know that the lifeboats were a problem on Titanic, which is something that people are aware of, but you need to kind of have it in the movie, right? And I think the like the essential success of this film is that it's totally obvious in basically every way. Like there's no subtext to Titanic, but he executes all of that completely in a way that that it's just so palatable. You don't ever feel like, ugh, this is so cheesy and bad. It's enjoyable. Like, you're just willing to be like, well, this is tropey and whatever. Barring some of the, you know, Irish and Italian stereotypes that we have already mentioned. Which is actually very 1912 of it. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Before we get into sort of the release and aftermath of the film a bit, do you want to just briefly tell the story of the uh, the PCP incident on set so that we don't leave that untold? <laughs> oh yeah, I mentioned that to you in the uh, in the audio commentary track, and I think you hadn't yes. heard of it before. But um, yeah, this I is not. kind of this is a mystery um surrounding uh, the making of this film. We'll link to an article about it in the show notes. But basically, part way through the filming of the movie, the chowder. Clam chowder, lobster chowder, chowder of some type at the craft services table was spiked with the drug PCP and a significant number of the cast and crew were like fully just high, vomiting, hallucinating, high, kind of all at once. James Cameron was drugged and figured out that something was going on. So he like made himself throw up, but basically dozens of people ended up in hospital and the police investigated this, but they never found out who the culprit was. One of the main theories is that it was a disgruntled crew member who'd been fired the day before for like starting some kind of conflict with the caterers, which James Cameron was like, yeah, it worked because we fired the caterers the next day. But yeah, like a a lot of people were not happy working on this film. So it could have been any number of uh, of individuals and we still do not know. Yeah, I mean, the BuzzFeed article that you mentioned, which I tremendously enjoyed, and obviously we'll link to that in the show notes, but if you like Titanic at all, I would really recommend reading it. The sense of just like the misery and chaos of working on this movie, you really get from that article. <laughs> and I knew this had been a you know troubled production, as they say, and I'd heard various stories about it. And you had told me about this particular thing when we were doing the commentary track, but I was reading this article and I was just like, oh, so this was a full nightmare. This was bad for everybody. Which, obviously, I mean, it did, like, take my enjoyment of the film, but it's always a bit like, mm, great. Yes, it's <laughs> always fascinating to see what type of person Hollywood celebrates. <laughs> Correct. The important yeah. thing is that he made a lot of money. <laughs> oh, he sure did. Yeah, I mean, this film was just in theaters for, like, ten months. Yeah. It was the number one film at the box office for 20 weeks, which was unheard yeah. of 
And in our current era of ubiquitous blockbusters, still doesn't happen because people don't watch movies that many times. And like the thing that was crucial with Titanic is that it was like a big box office success in its opening weekend. But if it had had the trajectory of, say, Avengers Endgame, it wouldn't have done as well. Because what happened with Titanic is that people kept going and went more and the word of mouth was incredible. Obviously, it got nominated for all these Oscars, which helped. But like people were just going like 15 to 20 times in a row and people from every demographic but particularly like teenage girls was the stereotype and that's kind of part of the reason why it's now seen as this really corny uh, thing also partly because of my heart will go on which is the corniest song ever recorded um but like it became this teen girl phenomenon but when i was reading this fantastic buzzfeed article by sarah marshall kind of looking at the section which kind of discusses the experiences of teenage girls who would see this dozens and dozens of times over i think it's clear from what we discussed already why people were seeing it like it's really tremendous escapist entertainment but it actually reminded me a lot of the kind of coverage that avatar got And the way I kind of look at both of these together now is that James Cameron has this fantastic skill for a particular type of storytelling. And like these two films are actually very different, but he's finding an audience that's like completely different from other movies that have really obsessive audiences. Because on the whole, we kind of associate films with obsessive audiences with kind of geek culture. So it's like Star Wars and stuff. And the thing about Titanic and Avatar is that both of those movies tapped into an audience of people who are like not really film buffs, not really nerdy, and kind of they're like not inoculated to the concept of being obsessed with something. It's like people who have like never experienced this kind of like artistic turn on before. And it's just like your mind is fucking blown. And people were like going to see Titanic a million times in the row because it was this perfect emotional escapism that they hadn't experienced before. And that's partly because it's one of these tragic love stories where it's like there's no way to solve the ending. So the only way to get that emotion back is to just go and watch the film again because the ending isn't like conclusively happy. So it's like, oh, I have to go back. It's the same desire that gives you fan fiction. It just made me think of like in <laughs> in Friends when like Joey becomes obsessed with like The Shining, the Stephen King book, and it's like the only book he's ever loved. And it's like, it's that vibe to me. Well- David Sims's theory about why people were going again and again was that, in fact, the movie does have a happy ending, which is like, how does a movie about the Titanic thinking have a happy ending? Yeah, bittersweet. But like, literally the last shot of the movie is this pan where you see everybody who was like a nice character, most of whom died, and they're all back on the Titanic looking happy. And Rose is wearing basically a wedding dress. And like, Jack is on the top of the stairs. And, like, they get to have their big kiss, and that's the end of the film. So you get to have the, like, catharsis of tragedy, which obviously is something that people enjoy. Yeah. But it's undercut by then. It's almost like you get you get the fan fiction within yeah. the film, right? I mean, right? that like ending, I felt that. amazing. <laughs> like that final like yeah. one minute scene with them together I was like oh they're back together this is this is fantastic and I was just like Jesus Christ it's a very effective movie <laughs> yeah no like on this podcast I think it was on his letterbox review too he was like this is why people went over and over again is that like the feeling you had for that one minute was so good that you just went back I mean what Katie Rich was saying on that podcast too is interesting because she was like exactly the right age for this which was that like it was out in theater so long And this is obviously before the days of streaming or even like getting DVDs on Netflix by many years. You just kind of went. You just went again. It was like she saw it something like seven or eight times. And maybe tickets were a lot cheaper. (laughs) Exactly. But like it was there for like 10 months. So it was just like, oh, I guess I'll go see Titanic again. It wasn't like you had to go seven times within a month to contribute all that money to the gross. You could go like once a month for like 10 months. And that's 10 times you've seen it, which obviously is still a lot, but if in a very different media landscape and that's still the big thing playing, it just feels a lot different, I think. Yeah, I mean, the Avatar thing is way more perplexing to me because I hate that movie. Well, yeah, because, I mean, listen to our episode on Avatar because that was one of our first episodes and it's still a great one. But, like, with Avatar, the way that people discuss it 
is the same. And I, I just find, I also like just have no respect for Avatar, like really on pretty much any level. I mean, technically speaking, I'm impressed by the fact that like they made up all this technology or whatever, but I'm like, this is just garbage. Um, but like the way people were talking about it, were like, oh yeah, I have to get back to like the planet of the Navi. I have to immerse yeah. myself in this. And it's like, I watch this and I'm like, this is the least immersive world building I've ever seen in my life. So like, it has to be people who like, Literally, they were like, Star Wars is too complex for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I just don't have as a strong a sense of like what the demographic was that was pulled into that movie. It and obviously, like every demographic, my guess would be white people, but like of all ages and <laughs> social backgrounds. Because like, like the media coverage, at least, was like, it wasn't like, here's a bunch of teens. It was like, yeah, there were younger people who were kind of LARPing and stuff, but there were people who were older and were like, I've just never experienced this magical land before. I wish I was living in like wherever the planet was called. Uh, I can't remember. Yes. The Navi or the people. I yeah. cannot tell you what the planet was called. But what's different there, what's interesting is like, I certainly remember there being a huge amount of talk about the technical accomplishment of that movie, which was extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of the other motion capture stuff happening around that time, and then you look at Avatar, it's, I mean, it's not, Yeah. there is no competition. But, like, I remember my dad going and seeing that movie, I had seen it with, a, with, with my friend Nicole, who I was mentioning earlier in this podcast, and we both thought it was hilariously bad. We were just like, oh my god, this is, a, this is garbage. And my dad saw it, and he thought it was really good and like visually so amazing and was annoyed that I thought it was bad. And within six months was like, had forgotten that he had had that reaction. Well, yeah, but that's, that's also the thing about Avatar, right? It's cause it's like, it had no lasting effect, right? Cause like every, yes. people had that effect, but it like, it burst like a soap bubble. Whereas with Titanic, people are still like, I'll rewatch Titanic. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. But obviously like my dad was a middle-aged dad with a full-time job so it's not like he was gonna have a bunch of time to go see avatar 10 times that's not his personality anyway but i feel like there i personally encountered a lot more of that sense of just like wow that was so cool and impressive than like i have to go see avatar 10 times which obviously people must have done or else the gross wouldn't have been that much we I mean, there was some inflation but like yeah it's it's just really peculiar and as you just said there is just no lasting impact of that movie at all like the people who are obsessed with it, I'm sure there are some who are still out there, but it clearly was a passing thing. Whereas Titanic was this formative cultural event. Yeah. And also like Kate Winslet and Leo both like are movie stars. Like yes. it, is, it is still, I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio's career has been bigger, partly because like he was extremely ambitious to, towards like pushing very serious roles for like the next 20 years. But like they're still both really famous. And for a lot of people, they are still like connected with this movie beyond anything. So, you know. Well, I thought what she said in that BuzzFeed piece was interesting that like in the immediate aftermath of the movie, that Kate Winslet was the one who was sort of greeted as the serious actor. Yeah. Which is interesting, like from a cultural perspective and also very promising even though it like sucked for leo to be like beatlemania for the next five years of his life it's like kate winslet is the better actor of the two in this film her character i think has more complexity on the page because like they have this combination of this very tropey rich romantic lead but like there's just this kind of very intelligently written kind of image of how she's really young and kind of acting like a teenager with her, her mom towards the beginning of the film and it's really conflicted and entertaining way but like Kate Winslet just brings so much personality to her as well as that like it's just a really great performance well she'd already been in Sense of Sensibility yeah. and Heavenly Creatures and maybe one other thing that I'm forgetting but um this I mean Kate Winslet in the early 2000s certainly I mean she had a run of really yeah remarkable movies Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is the one that st stands out the most to me in retrospect but um he didn't. I mean, he went away for a while. I think he was just desperately trying to avoid being mobbed. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I certainly knew that he had been such a phenomenon, but I think, again, we were just slightly too young to really grasp how big it was. I mean, reading this article, I was like, oh my god, this really was sort of unprecedentedly huge, and in a way that sounds really, really unpleasant. And I think part of what then happened with the two of them is that he clearly had a just like need to prove himself after this that has translated into the Oscar thing 
which we've all experienced. And he now only works with these like very serious directors because I think he needs to be taken seriously as an actor. And he also like loves darker, more complex characters. Yes. Whereas she had this great run when she was younger, which obviously is a problem for actresses anyway, but she also had the backlash after the Academy Award, um, which was not her fault. But she has made bad choices professionally (laughs) in the decade or so that has followed that. I mean, it has not been good. And I have no insight about what's going on there, what's been offered to her. She had a kid pretty young, so she's had kids the whole time. But um, he's also made a bunch of movies I'm not particularly interested in, so it's not, you know, both of them have made some interesting choices. But um, he's obviously had more longevity as sort of like a star in the cultural firmament in a conscious way for all of us, right? Because he just is clearly obsessed with working on serious stuff all the time, which seems tied to the fact that he was so fetishized as a young person. Yeah, quite a trip to watch them both in this now. And quite a trip to watch uh, Kate Winslet in Avatar 2 in the near future, where James Cameron made her and a bunch of children film a whole bunch of scenes underwater in a tank. So, rather you Uh, than me. I mean, I guess someday we will see that movie. Anyway, this is now a very long podcast. But a delight to discuss. Thank you so much again to Kat for sponsoring this episode. It was really, really fun. I'm glad I have finally seen Titanic. (laughs) Seems like a big cultural sort of gap that was missing for me. So next week, we will be watching the film Eternal Beauty, which came out last year, I believe. This is another listener request. It stars Sally Hawkins... David Thewlis and Billy Piper, which is a trio that really, I mean, what more can you ask for? And it is about uh, a woman with schizophrenia and her life. I don't know too much about it, but it got very good reviews. And uh, I love all those actors. So I am really looking forward to checking out this movie. It is available to stream everywhere, I believe. So if you want to catch up with that for our episode next week, you can do so. Yeah, if you want to listen to our commentary track for this, as we mentioned, you can find that on our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes, where I discuss costume design on film. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at MLJBs. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.